When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This podcast contains adult themes and language, and some of the things that we discuss may be disturbing to some listeners. In this podcast, we discuss sexual assault, torture, race, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. Please take care of yourself. Welcome to Fruit Loops, episode 205, Bienvenidos Bitches and Buiti Binafi. Thank you for listening and being here. Yay! Fruit Loops is a podcast about true crimes committed by people of color and those who are othered and the victims because contrary to popular belief, not all serial killers are straight, cis, able-bodied white dudes. No, these crimes rarely get any public attention because the news is racist. Allegedly. (laughs) And we are Wendy and Beth. She's Wendy, a black Latinx woman. And I'm Beth, and I just happen to be white. Yeah, she's, um, she's, um, she's all right. How do I say this? She's, um, yeah, no, she's great. (laughs) We're not journalists, investigators, or psychologists, just a couple of gals interested in true crime. Also, the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that our opinions. So, who are we talking about today, Beth? Well, today we're talking about David Martinez Ramirez, a Latinx man who killed a woman and her teenage daughter while he was out on parole. Oh. So not good. Not no, good. No, <laughs> not good. Yeah, but what do you subscribe to this for? <laughs> not good stories. <laughs> right. Yeah. Did you come for a true crime podcast or not? Because if you didn't, goodbye. Um, <laughs> before we get into it, though, how you doing? I'm doing all right. So nothing much going on. Just work, 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 you know. Yeah, I I know the feeling. Yeah, fall is here. It's all of a sudden almost the end of 2023. And if you ask me, shit's crazy. I mean, there was a hurricane in L.A. Maui is still in need of some serious help. There's true crime news about this nurse in England. What? She killed a bunch of babies. 
What? And race has a lot one. to do with why she, I think she got away with it. So she just got arrested like last week. Oh, or no, wow. sentenced, sentenced to life in prison. But okay. you can hear us talk about it when we talk about the news on Patreon. Okay, cool. But yeah, everything is crazy. It feels crazy. I feel like I'm on shaky yeah. ground. I feel like I don't have a handle on it's anything. It's been kind of nuts for the past, what, four years? <laughs> yes. And Oh, Mercury... no, longer than that. Since 2016. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's been a while. It's been a uh, while, Mer- yeah. <laughs> Mercury is in uh, Gatorade. And so communication is off during Mercury retrograde. Uh, So everything I've been saying to people has been completely misconstrued. People are completely misunderstanding me. And it's developed. It's just causing a lot of stress and strife in my life. So I can't wait for it to be over. Now, (laughs) let's get into some listener later. All right. Where's that sound? Where's those angels? Oh, there you are. Thank you, angels. What's in that bag, Beth? Well, I wanted to say thank you to Keith for your email. Thank you, Keith. Yeah. Uh, Hip hop air horns for Keith. And he commented on our episode about Matsunuga and Ogata. Oh, yeah. And he said, FYI, futons in Japan are not like futons in the U.S., in Japan, a futon is just the mattress, no frame. Oh. And typically, the futon is placed on top of a tatami. So oh. there you go. Well, I oh, thank you so much. I yeah. I had no idea. So thank you, Keith. We appreciate yeah. that. Love learning about this stuff. Yes, yes, yeah. so much. It's so we just are so grateful. Thank you, Keith. Yeah. What else we got? I think we got some more knowledge. We got another email from Manon. Manon is a proud Haitian Hello, and wanted to bring up something that was said in the Barnes episode. Oh, They said, a lot of people don't realize why Napoleon sold the Louisiana Territory. At the time, he was desperate for money. Haiti won their independence and France just lost their cash cow. Mm. At the time, Haiti accounted for almost 25% of their GDP. With Haiti lost, Napoleon had his dream of a North American territory dashed. He was also fighting a war with England and didn't have the resources to maintain the Louisiana Territory. He didn't just get bored. So there you go. <laughs> well, thank you, Manon. I really appreciate that. Yeah, like I said in my history book, they made it sound like Thomas Jefferson got this great deal and like tricked Napoleon out of it. But there's so yeah. much more to it than that. Yeah. And I will never get tired of hearing about Haiti or other African countries that, you know, defeated their colonizers yeah i love this so hip-hop air horns to yeah thank you and then a quick thank you to silly infinity and kdon 1991 for your reviews yay thank y'all yeah i have another air horn (laughs) thank you thank you thank you yeah and please send any questions or comments to fruitloopspod at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 602-935-6294. 602-935-6294. And we may feature it on a future episode. Also, join us on Patreon, where we have literally hundreds of hours of bonus content, and we have a video club for 12-plus patrons where you can interact with us in person. That's right. No new Patreons this week, no Patreons or Kofi donations, and that's okay. We just wanted to remind everybody that this show is powered by our fruity community. We'd be nowhere mm-hmm. without our supporters, our Patreons, Kofis, yeah. 
everybody who's out there rocking with us. We're just so grateful. So thank you to everyone. Now, let's take a quick break and then we'll get into the story when we come back. Okay. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there. And we're back. Remind us, Beth, who is our subject today? David Martinez Ramirez, a Latinx man who killed a woman and her teenage daughter while he was out on parole. Okay, so an interesting tidbit about this case is that it went all the way up to the Supreme Court. Yeah. And has now lasting effects on defendants everywhere in this country. Yeah. And their rights to appeal. So let's move on to the love and light portion where we offer love, light, and just rest in powers and peace to the victims and anybody left in the wake of this horrific case. So rest in power to Marianne Gortares, who was 32, and her daughter Candy Gortares, who was 15 years old. So now let's get into the setting. Take us there, Beth. Well, the setting is Phoenix, Arizona. We've been there before, but here we go again. (laughs) Oh, no, Phoenix. (laughs) Phoenix, what are you doing here? I'm just kidding. (laughs) Phoenix is the capital and most populous city in Arizona with approximately 1,650,000 residents. Mm. It is also the fifth most populous city in the United States. The Phoenix metropolitan area, also known as the Valley of the Sun, is a part of the Salt River Valley. Ah, yes. Now, with a population of almost 5 million people in the metropolitan area, it is the 11th most populous in the United States. The climate in Phoenix is arid with long, hot. Did we mention long, hot summers? 
and mild winters. We live for the winters. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'll take Christmas in Phoenix any day over yeah. anywhere else. But those summers, <laughs> woo! <laughs> and it has the highest average temperature in the United States of any metropolitan region. Arizona is home to a diverse population. About one quarter of the state is made up of Native American reservations that serve as the home of 27 federally recognized Native American tribes, including the Navajo Nation, the largest in the state and in the United States. Wow. The Latinx population, which is predominantly Mexican, is 31% of the total Phoenix metro population. That makes the Phoenix metro area the eighth largest in the U.S. by Latinx population, which is actually surprising to me because I thought it would be closer to the top. Oh, interesting. Well, you know, I think all of these large cities can no longer ignore the numbers of traditionally minoritized populations, right? Because we're not a human being isn't a minority, right? They're, they're human populations that just in the past have been discounted. But now their right. numbers are so big that they cannot be ignored. So, right. yeah, it is interesting, but it's happening everywhere. And yeah. I think that's great. So thousands of years before white people, the whites came to this area. <laughs> there was a well-established civilized community that lived there already. And the Salt River ran through the valley and these former residents built an irrigation system consisting mostly of some 135 miles of canals to wow. make the land fertile, which is remarkable. Yeah. Ingenious. Really. Thousands of years ago. Yeah. And the present day canal system in Phoenix followed in the footsteps of the canals while also pushing people out of their homes. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Yay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so the ultimate fate of this society is still a mystery. The accepted belief is that it was destroyed by a prolonged drought and some flooding. Other Native Americans observing the ruins of the community left behind gave them the name Hohokam, meaning the people who have gone. Mm -hmm. The Akimil O'odham, also known as Pima, and Tohono O'odham and Maricopa tribes, as well as the Yavapai and Apache, began to use the area. In 1804, the area that is now Arizona became part of the territory of Alta California, a.k.a. Nueva California, in New Spain, España. Spanish soldiers, settlers, and missionaries invaded the homelands of the indigenous peoples in the establishment of Alta California. Mexico won independence in 1821, and Alta California became part of independent Mexico. Then, in 1848, after being defeated in the Mexican-American War, Mexico ceded much of this territory to the United States. Hey, just a quick culture corner. Sorry. Oh, go ahead. You know, we call this war the Mexican-American War. We call the Vietnam War the Vietnam War. But it's interesting to hear what people who were afflicted by the war actually call it. Vietnamese people don't call it the Vietnam War. They call it the American War, I believe. Oh, wow. Yeah. Because it impacted them differently. Than differently. It did. Yeah. Right. So they I, have a I, different I perspective, a different perspective and a different name. I don't know what Mexican people call the Mexican-American War, but I don't imagine it is the same. Right. Anyway, right. I'm done now. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> so by 1868, a small colony had formed approximately four miles east of present day Phoenix, originally called Swilling's Mill. It went through many name changes before settling on the name Phoenix. Hmm. Some of the suggested names for the new town were Mill City, hmm. Hellings Mill, oh. Pumpkinville. Oh, <laughs> I love that one. Wow. Pumpkinville. You're going to love this one. <laughs> <Wait>. Stonewall. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. Me no likey. <laughs> and Selena. Huh. 
The name Phoenix was chosen to signify how a new civilization was reborn from the ashes of a former civilization. Interesting. Hell was taken, huh? Uh, in the earliest <laughs> years, about half of the population were Mexican citizens. Just kidding. I love Phoenix. <laughs> and, uh, and Mexican Americans. By 1900, white people comprised less than half of the turn of the century population. One third were ethnic Mexicans born either in the Southwest or Mexico, and Native peoples accounted for more than 20 percent. The Mexican Revolution from 1910 to 1920 caused a wave of immigration from Mexico into the United States as people fled the violence. The economy during this time was based on cotton, citrus, and cattle. Farms dominated the region and the population continued to climb, driven by migrant farm workers. I think that was the most surprising thing to me when I moved to Phoenix is the farms. Yeah. And I, I lived in South Phoenix. <laughs> yeah. I was like, what? I didn't even think anything grew here. Yeah. But it was also jarring to be a black person. I bought my first home in Phoenix and it was next to a cotton, cotton field. Yeah, <laughs> I was just yeah like, that would be pretty wow. weird. Yeah. Oh, my God. What are the Are the ancestors rolling in their graves right now? I don't know. <laughs> uh, so until 1940. Many of the newcomers came from Mexico, Texas, Oklahoma, and Arkansas for the cotton boom that followed the building of the Roosevelt Dam on the Salt River and expansion of irrigated agriculture. As the Anglo population increased in size and power, the Latinx community experienced social, political, economic, and geographic marginalization. Phoenicians of Mexican descent, along with Black folks, Asians, and Native Americans, experienced growing prejudice and discrimination. Surprise! <laughs> yeah, yeah. They resided in separate neighborhoods from Anglos, encountered growing segregation practices in public accommodations, and had little voice in the political development of the city. Yeah, there are even, it was segregated. So yeah. anyone who wasn't white wasn't allowed past a certain point in cities right. without work papers or after dark. So, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, this is not ancient history. No. So according to the U.S. Census, the number of Phoenicians of Mexican descent hovered around 10 to 15 percent of the total population within the city limits during the first 30 years of the 20th century. The true number was actually larger due to the fact that many Mexican families between 1920 and the 1940s lived outside the city limits and were not counted by city-defined census figures. Go figure. World War II changed the state's economy as the federal government established military bases and defense installations. As employment opportunities increased, the need for housing in the region followed. The end of the war brought more people to the valley. The farms gradually disappeared under the spread of housing and commercial development. Arizona's Latinx GDP is $91.9 billion. Wow. A billy, wow. a billy, a billy, a billy, a billy. <laughs> that is larger than the entire economic output of the state of New Hampshire. Wow, that's Holy amazing. Holy shit. Yeah. yeah. In general, Arizona's Latinx economy is broad and diversified. The state's top five Latinx GDP sectors are finance and real estate, government, education and healthcare, professional and business services, and construction. But thousands of Latinx workers are largely invisible. Their work as caretakers of children and the elderly, dishwashers or cooks in restaurants, and hotel housekeeping staff, among other roles, remain in the shadows of an economy that absolutely depends on their labor. Mm -hmm. So now let's get into the early life of Mr. David Martinez Ramirez. Okay. David Martinez Ramirez was born on April 7th, 1957, 
Most of the information that we have found on his early life is from a case background prepared by a federal public defender. So do with that what you will. Yeah. We don't know the veracity of all of this. Right. His mother, Maria, was 15 when David was born. She worked as a migrant farm laborer where she lived in deplorable conditions and was exposed to pesticides and herbicides. She lacked adequate nutrition during her pregnancy and received little prenatal care. She also reportedly had an alcohol use disorder and drank throughout her pregnancy. Mm. It has also been reported that she attempted an abortion when she was pregnant with David. I just, I mean, imagine how difficult all that would be yeah. for a young teenage I can't woman, even mother. imagine. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's just ugh, the yeah. circumstances, just horrible. Yeah, difficult. And one thing to say about the deplorable conditions, I've actually been to a migrant farm labor Camps, camp. Yeah. And the conditions are deplorable, but it's not because of the people living there. No. Those are just the conditions. <laughs> right. It's, their it's employers. not like they're dirty. Yeah, exactly. It's these are conditions that are imposed upon them by, you know, the boss, the boss. Right. Man. So exactly. I think some people might read about those conditions and blame Maria. Right. But oh, she no, was, it's no. not. I totally don't believe this is her fault. But the drinking thing is one thing to consider. Yeah. But, you know, imagine all the pain she was in. Right. Yeah. Maria's heavy drinking continued throughout David's childhood, leading her to abuse and neglect him and his seven siblings. As a toddler, Maria gave David beer to drink in order to quiet him. She regularly left the children unsupervised without food for days at a time. David was reportedly, quote, so malnourished that his belly was distended, unquote. David routinely witnessed his mother having sex with men for money, booze or drugs, and also saw her allow various men to have sex with his sisters to support her needs. Mm. From a young age, he also saw Maria beaten by her boyfriends sometimes resulting in broken bones. David spent his childhood being shuttled between different family members and Maria. Maria lived in filthy shacks with animal feces in the house. There were no books or toys. The children slept on a dirty mattress on the floor, surrounded by cats and dogs. They ate from plates the dog had already eaten on. Maria routinely slapped, hit, and kicked the children, and David suffered head injuries from her abuse. However, a sentencing memorandum report by a Dr. McMahon said that Maria, quote, never worked, devoted her time as a traditional Mexican-American mother whose responsibilities revolves around the home and her children and was always there for David when he needed her as he was growing up, end quote. So there's some differing accounts. It's contradicting, yeah. Yeah. Quite, Quite different accounts. The report stated that Ramirez told Dr. McMahon that several family members had sexually abused him, but explained that he did not tell his mother about it because he, quote, was fearful she would become extremely upset and angry, unquote. David's IQ scores reflect severe impairment. From ages 9 to 48, he received numerous IQ scores in the intellectually disabled range, with scores between 64 and 74. David manifested impaired intellectual functioning from an early age. He was slow to achieve developmental milestones like potty training, walking, talking, and using utensils. By age 10, he still had trouble using a knife and fork, and even in his early teens, he struggled to tie his shoes. That sounds really, that's sad. Yeah, it is. David changed schools 10 times before seventh grade and was held back several times. In fourth grade, a school psychologist theorized he had been promoted only because he was, quote, 
getting pretty old to be in that low a grade, unquote. And you want to talk about shattering a child's like spirit? Even as a teenager, he had difficulty with the most basic math concepts. He was placed in special education classes and often tried to hide his disabilities by avoiding answering questions. He, quote, hated to read in front of the class because the teacher would always have to read for him almost every word, unquote. David also had difficulty learning and following rules, which caused him to engage in dangerous behaviors. At age 10, he was found hanging from a clothesline after he had wrapped his neck in order to see what would happen. As a teenager, he was hit by a car while crossing the street, suffering a severe leg injury. He struggled socially, often appearing passive, withdrawn, and keeping to himself. Other children took advantage of his vulnerabilities and, quote, used him as a pawn to hustle up marijuana, booze, or spending money, unquote. I feel so bad for this young version of this awful person that we're talking about. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. Even as an adult, he was unable to live independently and worked on and off at low-skilled, low-paying jobs from which he could not sustain a living. He often acted impulsively without thinking. He had a gang affiliation and was a chronic substance user. Ramirez had prior convictions for aggravated assault, robbery, and escape Whoa! in 1979, 1981, and 1982. Yeah, I couldn't find any information about the escape. <laughs> oh, dang it. I, I wanted that was, to because was... I knew you would, you would be excited <laughs> about that. It's yeah. one of my favorite aspects of true crime, a good escape story. <laughs> he had been released from prison about two months before the murders occurred and was out on parole. Mm. So now let's get into the timeline. Splish splash. Come on in. The water's fine. So Ramirez was an (laughs) acquaintance of Marianne Gortares and her 15-year-old daughter, Candy. Some articles refer to Marianne as his girlfriend, but we don't know what the exact nature of their relationship was. Again, we're only hearing this from, you know, Ramirez. Articles and, yeah. yeah. And he may have thought she was his girlfriend, but she wasn't, Uh, you know? yeah, Yeah. Yeah. Who knows? Marianne was separated from her husband and worked nights at a discount store warehouse. She was described by a neighbor as a good friend who often stopped by for chats and would sometimes bring neighbors food. Candy, her daughter, was described as soft-spoken and nice. She was only 15, so there wasn't a lot of information out there about her. Yeah, disappointing, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, I wonder if this had happened in a different time, like when teenagers have social media. Oh, and yeah, we probably would have gotten more information yeah, in yeah. the world, more known. And plus, I think people do better about talking I about mean, the, the news, talk, talking yeah. about the victims. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so they're not they're harder to forget. I think there are a lot of times in these older newspapers there. The victims are just a footnote. Yeah. Yeah. So on the evening of May 24th, 1989. Ramirez visited Marianne and Candy at their West Phoenix apartment on 35th Avenue and Glen Rosa. Ramirez lived nearby on Glen Rosa Avenue. He later said that he had had 10 beers and two mixed drinks that night, which is too many, and that he also injected himself with cocaine six times. Injected cocaine. That's that's not something we hear about often. A lot, no. Yeah. No. So... That's I nuts. don't know anything about. I can't. I can't speak to that experience. No, um, I can't either. It's, okay. it's just kind of nuts. <laughs> yeah, hardcore. I'd say not something I would do. <laughs> nah, nah. At least not not right now. I not mean, right now. No. Yeah. <laughs> At about.
about 2.30 a.m. on May 25th, a resident of the apartment complex saw Ramirez talking with Marianne outside of Marianne's apartment, and he appeared drunk and was staggering. Ramirez was wearing a white shirt and dark pants. When the resident went back inside her apartment at about 3.30 a.m., Ramirez and Marianne were still talking. So they're sitting outside of the apartment. I'm mm-hmm. wondering if she's trying to get rid of him. Right, to be nice, right? Yeah. yeah, that, yeah. And I don't know if we have a tip yet, but don't be polite. Don't yeah. be polite to men who creep you out. <laughs> I'm gonna. <laughs> you had a song like that, didn't you? <laughs> uh, well, I saw it on TikTok. Don't. Be oh, you saw it on TikTok. Who creep you out. Don't be polite to them. It's not your job to love on them. Don't be polite <laughs> to men who creep you out. <laughs> Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, And I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. Type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy and you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. You stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. Priscilla Arce, her sister, Kathy, and Kathy's boyfriend, Larry Burnaby, lived in the apartment directly above Marianne's. At about 5 a.m., they were awakened by banging, screaming, and running noises coming from the apartment below. Larry and Kathy went down to Marianne's apartment to investigate. When Larry knocked on the front door, the noises stopped and no one answered. Larry decided to phone the police. Not having a phone in their apartment, he went to a neighbor's to use their phone, but there was no response to his knocks. It's the 80s, right? So there's no cell phones, right? So I don't think it's it's 89. 89, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, phones aren't as accessible as they are now. So it makes sense that it's like, 
somebody come what do we do yeah yeah so uncertain of what to do next barnaby and kathy went back upstairs to the apartment and listened for any additional activity or noises about five minutes later larry heard a bang against the wall and one last loud female scream priscilla also heard a female scream no or help me or something like that and then one last ugly scream Larry ran back down to Marianne's apartment and tried to kick down the door. He called out to Marianne and her daughter, but there was no response. He then ran to a window at the back of the apartment and looked in Candy's bedroom window. He noticed that a lamp was on the floor and observed a shadow moving in the hallway near the bathroom. After briefly looking in Marianne's bedroom window, Larry went to some public phones located near the apartment to call 911. The police arrived a few minutes later at about 5.36 a.m. Larry and Kathy directed them to Marianne's apartment. Two officers knocked on the door and announced their presence. When no one responded, one officer went to the back of the apartment where he was joined by another. Meanwhile, at the front of the apartment, another officer joined the first. So there were a total of four officers. The police officers remained in contact with each other through the use of portable radios. The officers in the back looked in the daughter's bedroom window and noticed blood on the window frame and latch. They then saw a man entering the bedroom and yelled at him to go to the front door. The man grunted and left the bedroom. One officer broadcast over the police radio that he observed a subject wearing a red shirt and suspenders. Suspenders? And described the suspect as Hispanic wearing suspenders. A minute or two later, officers heard the sound of window blinds rustling in Marianne's bedroom. One officer investigated the noise while the other remained at the daughter's bedroom window. The man returned to the daughter's bedroom and the officer once again told Ramirez to go to the front door and unlock it. A fifth officer arrived on the scene and obtained a pass key to the apartment from the manager of the apartment complex. He delivered the key to the officers who were still at the front door. Before using the key, the police once again knocked on the door, announced their presence and told the man to open the door. When no one responded, they unlocked the door and entered the apartment. The first thing they observed was a bloody knife blade without a handle lying in front of the door. As they approached the living room, they saw Marianne's clothed body lying on the floor. The officers drew their weapons and proceeded to the living room. As they walked towards Marianne's body, Ramirez approached them from the hallway. They yelled at Ramirez to put his hands on the back of his head. He responded by raising his hands in the air. Ramirez was not wearing a shirt and, quote, had blood all over his body, front to back, unquote. Oh, that yeah. the red shirt and suspenders. Shirt. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> the only injuries Ramirez had sustained, however, were cuts on the inside of his fingers on both hands. Ramirez was detained and taken outside. Since Ramirez was not wearing suspenders, Police believe that they were still looking for a man with suspenders. Oh. oh, wow. Well, it was the 80s. I guess that was a thing people walked around in frequently. Suspenders. I, Did you see I don't... people in suspenders everywhere you went? Uh, No, but some people did wear suspenders. I don't know. Is it a Latinx thing, maybe? I don't think so. Okay. I just figured suspenders was a thing that old people, like older men wear. To Maybe. hold their pants up. Well, yeah. But it just seems very interesting that in the setting of all this chaos, that they're still, they won't let go of the suspenders. Right. Now, <laughs> without informing Ramirez of his Miranda rights, an officer turned to Ramirez and asked him what was going on. Ramirez responded, quote, we had a big fight, unquote. The officer then asked who else was inside. And Ramirez replied, my girlfriend. 
and her daughter, unquote. Last, the officer asked Ramirez if anybody else was hurt, to which Ramirez responded, quote, yeah, they're hurt pretty bad. We're all hurt pretty bad, unquote. The officer observed that Ramirez appeared to be under the influence of drugs or alcohol. The officer then escorted Ramirez to a patrol car. Ramirez volunteered, quote, you can ask anyone. Me and my girlfriend are very close. We're going to get married, unquote. Oh, okay. Um, A weird thing to say. Indeed. So police re-entered the apartment and conducted a sweep, looking for the guy with the red shirt and suspenders. No such suspect was found, but a pair of blood-soaked suspenders were found lying on a chair. So I guess he was wearing them at one point. Aha! Now what do we do? What do we do? What do we do now? Are we are we police? Oh, that's right. We have. I'm sorry. We have a job to do. Okay, we found the suspender. Oh wait, this isn't a scavenger hunt. Oh, okay. Oh boy, scavenger hunt. (laughs) Police then performed a detailed examination of the apartment. In the foyer area, blood was smeared on the walls on both sides of the entryway and on the front door. So the attack happened. It started at the door. I'm thinking. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So mm-hmm. maybe she was trying to keep him out or get him to leave. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Just inside the door lay a bloody knife blade. The floor near the baseboard was stained with blood that appeared to be hair from someone's head. Marianne's body lay face up on the living room floor near a love seat. She had suffered numerous stab wounds. A cake knife bent at a 45 degree angle lay near her right arm and a portion of its handle was in her hair. Also from her hair was a handle from another knife that matched the knife blade found near the front door. The couch in the living room was stained with blood and pulled away from the wall. A blood spatter on the wall indicated that someone had been behind the couch. So this this was a huge fight. Uh, Yeah, very intense struggle. Yeah, very intense. Yeah. A pillow on the floor was also stained with blood and blood was spattered on the wall near the television. The bathroom had blood on the floor door walls, sink, and bathtub. Water was running in the bathtub, diluting the blood on it. On the toilet seat, on the top of a garment, lay a pair of scissors. The scissors were saturated with blood and hair sticking to them. A portion of one of the shears was broken off. The kitchen area was also covered with blood. On the floor, wall, sink, stove, and cabinets, several drawers were pulled open and at least two of them had blood droplets inside. So he's going around looking for more weapons, I guess. That's what it sounds like. Yeah. A man's white shirt stained with blood lay on an ironing board in the dining area. In the hallway outside the kitchen lay a blood-soaked box cutter. Wow. Yeah. I, I, this I, is I, a lot. I was just going to go out on a limb and say this is one of the most horrific scenes we've described. Covered, and yeah. Covered. And uh, I'm sweating. Except for a long streak of blood running down the wall to the right of the window, Marianne's room showed no signs of disturbance. But Candace's bedroom was, quote, in a state of considerable disarray, unquote. And her blood-covered naked body was lying face down on the floor on a blanket. In the corner of the room lay a bloody towel that contained hair consistent with candies. Blood was on the floor, door, walls, dresser, the window, and the window's lock mechanism. So somebody was trying to get out. Right? Yeah, it sounds like it. So now let's get into the investigation and the arrest. Hit it, Beth. Ramirez, the only person alive in the apartment, was arrested at the scene. 
He was dazed and disoriented at the time of his arrest and had been abusing alcohol and cocaine heavily in the months leading up to the crime. But he was on parole. Right, which you are not allowed to be. You're not supposed to be drugs <laughs> when you're on parole. So, and I mean, are we surprised about why? So, no, um, but, it impairs yeah. your decision making, right? And 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 when you're on parole, you're supposed to be on the straight and narrow and yeah. getting your life together. Anyway, Marianne's autopsy revealed that she had been stabbed eighteen times in the neck. Oh my One god! One of those wounds penetrated her jugular vein and was potentially fatal. The wounds in Marianne's neck were approximately one inch deep, and the shapes of the wounds were consistent with the scissors the police found in the bathroom. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Marianne was also stabbed in the back and in her knee. The wound to the back also proved to be potentially fatal. In addition to the wounds to her neck, back, and knee, Marianne sustained defensive wounds on both of her forearms and on her left hand. So when they say a wound is potentially fatal, they're saying, like, Absent all these other wounds, this uh-huh. wound, this wound would have. could have killed her alone. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So uh, overkill, I think. Yeah. And, definitely um, overkill. It, it, I mean, relentless and vicious. Yeah. I mean, all the stabbings is a lot, right? But to add, like, wh- why stab her knee? Like, was he trying to torture her, or you know, that's I what think I he thought, was just stabbing, at, just stab, stab, stabbing. You know. Yeah. I don't know. It's don't just know. horrifying yeah. no matter it how is. we, you know, try to parse it out. So she also suffered bruising and hemorrhaging around her eyes, consistent with a blunt force injury. The medical examiner testified that despite the fatal wounds inflicted on her body, Marianne would have been able to move about for a brief period of time. And maybe yeah, that and obviously she green. did. Yeah. Yeah. Candy's autopsy revealed that she had been stabbed 15 times in the neck. She also sustained bruises and abrasions to her face. The medical examiner testified that although the stab wounds caused her death, her death was not immediate. That part, I read that and it made me angry. Yeah. And she's so young. Young. Yeah, she's a kid. She's a kid. The police obtained vaginal swabs from the daughter that tested positive for semen. Criminalist Inta Meya later testified that based on the tests she conducted, she was unable to exclude Ramirez as a possible semen donor. And this was back in, by the time this was going on, maybe 1990. So DNA was pretty new. new. Yeah. Mm-hmm. During a psychological examination, Ramirez, who was 32 years old at the time of the murders, admitted that he'd had sex with 15-year-old Candy on the night of the murders and that he had sex with her on four previous occasions. And by having sex with her, he may have meant he raped her. Yeah. And either way, it's for a grown man to do that to a 15-year-old girl. 15-year-old is really, really. I want to say heinous. Is that? It is is heinous, yeah. Okay. Um, Thanks, smart friend. So now (laughs) let's get into the trial. So the lawyer appointed to represent Ramirez had never handled or even observed a capital murder trial before. She was aware that Ramirez had low IQ scores, was three or four grades behind his peers in school, switched schools repeatedly, and never graduated from high school. She knew some facts about his traumatic and impoverished upbringing, but did not investigate further or present a claim of mental impairment. 
The lawyer later admitted being, quote, unprepared to represent someone as mentally disturbed as Ramirez, unquote. But that's the unfortunate thing about the system, the criminal legal system, is yeah. that court-appointed defense attorneys don't necessarily get to choose their clients. They're appointed. Right. Yeah. And so you might not know that you are unprepared to take on such a case until you get into it. And time yeah. is of the essence, especially when you're defending somebody who has the right to a speedy trial. So, right. yeah, I don't know if there's a better way to have gone about this, but I think that that takes a lot for somebody to admit that they were not ready at the time to yeah. take the case. Yeah. And you would never see that from a male. I've never seen that before, by the way. Yeah. Uh, you got, so a man would that's never. That's probably very true. Yeah. So um, the prosecutor extended a plea offer to Ramirez that would have spared his life. But Ramirez's lawyer did not convey the gravity of his situation to him in terms he could understand. And he rejected the prosecutor's offer. His defense was that no direct evidence linked him to the crime. No fingerprints were found on the murder weapons and that his mere presence was insufficient to sustain a murder conviction. Oh, they maintained that another person had entered the apartment while Ramirez, Marianne and the daughter were asleep. And that person committed the murders and they stabbed Marianne and Candy like multiple, multiple times, but only cut Ramirez's hands. That makes sense. Uh-huh. <laughs> and don't forget, left they left suspenders. So yes, if we and find they left who owns suspenders. the suspenders, <laughs> then we'll find reasonable doubt. They win. The suspenders. So, <laughs> so the jury found Ramirez guilty of two counts of premeditated first-degree murder. At sentencing, the defense counsel did not provide the defense expert who testified at the sentencing hearing with the IQ scores, school records, or family history information, and relied on his assessment, based on his incomplete information, that Ramirez was intellectually average. The judge found three aggravating circumstances. Ramirez had two prior violent felony convictions. He committed the murders in an especially cruel, heinous, or depraved manner, and he committed multiple homicides during the same episode. The judge found that the mitigating circumstances were not sufficient to warrant leniency. Before imposing sentence, the trial court gave Ramirez an opportunity to speak on his own behalf, but he chose not to address the court, and Ramirez was sentenced to death. After the sentencing hearing, Ramirez got into a scuffle with the sheriff's deputies when he suddenly stood up and started advancing towards a detention officer. Mm. He was wrestled to the floor and then taken to a holding cell. Ramirez said he was trying to get at one of the prosecutors. And Whoa. a three-inch long screw was found on the floor by the table <gasps> where Ramirez had been sitting. No. Yeah. Well, that's not going to make his case any better. No. Wow. <laughs> okay. My name is Bill Huffman, and I am a former Cleveland News producer, and I am now the host of the podcast, Who Killed? I began the show focusing on the unsolved murder of Amy Mihaljevic, and now each week I explore a different case with a focus on some of the victims who don't get the attention they deserve. 
I have a deep catalog of over 225 episodes, so there is a guarantee there will be something for you. Who Killed is an evergreen podcast, killer podcasts, and slow burn media production. Subscribe today wherever you get your favorite shows. Well, let's get into where are they now? Well, I'll tell you. Ramirez appealed, like his trial counsel, Ramirez's state post-conviction review attorney, was aware that he had low IQ scores and other indicators of intellectual disability. But this lawyer also failed to investigate and present the evidence of Ramirez's impairments. The case went to federal district court and new counsel appointed to represent Ramirez in federal court proceedings finally obtained all available IQ tests and school social services, and other records available to demonstrate that he satisfied the diagnostic criteria for intellectual disability. Ramirez's new lawyers appealed on the grounds of ineffective assistance of counsel, saying the trial counsel failed to present or pursue evidence of Ramirez's intellectual disability, failed to provide relevant and potentially mitigating evidence to the psychologist who evaluated him, and subsequently relied on the psychologist's report, despite possessing contrary facts. The federal court first denied him because he defaulted by being too late in state court. So the filings were too late, maybe. Got it. I mean, that wouldn't be, he wouldn't have any control over that, right? So that no, would be that's another uh, attorney. Another thing. lawyer issue. Yeah. yeah. After he claimed that his post-conviction lawyer was also ineffective, the district court allowed him to bring new evidence not presented in state court to support his request to have his claim heard despite the default. So this was really confusing, and I may have gotten some of this wrong, but okay. my understanding was that since the stuff wasn't presented in state court, mm -hmm. they were like, well, then you can't. You can't bring it to uh -huh. federal court. And then okay. they they did some lawyer stuff. And <laughs> <laughs> then they said, OK, I guess we'll hear it. <laughs> that's my that's my interpretation. <laughs> that sounds that sounds a OK to me as far as understanding. Let's go with it. Okay. And fruities, <laughs> you know where to find us if we got it wrong. Yeah. So the state of Arizona petitioned for judicial review of a decision of a lower court. The Supreme Court agreed to review his case and that of another Arizona prisoner, Barry Jones. Arizona Attorney General Mark Brnovich brought both cases before the Supreme Court under a single petition, Shin versus Martinez. So they were trying to block the federal court from having this hearing. Oh, okay. That's okay. why it was brought to the Supreme Court. Got Ramirez it. and Jones argued that whatever procedural errors had occurred should not be held against them because their attorneys at the post-conviction phase had been ineffective. Shin V. Martinez concluded on May 23, 2022, in a 6-3 ruling. This is a number we always see, the 6-3. And when it yeah. refers to free Supreme Court, we know what it is. We, we know, know what the, which we, six and we which know three. What time it is. Yeah. <laughs> so in May of 2022, in a 6-3 supermajority ruling with Justice Clarence motherfucking Thomas writing the majority's opinion, the Supreme Court ruled that federal courts should be bound by evidence introduced in prior state proceedings, regardless of whether the prisoner had an effective post-conviction lawyer or any lawyer at all, that federal courts 
can't consider evidence that was not introduced at a state level for ineffective counsel claims. So you're fucked. So if, yeah. if you have a shitty attorney, if you you're just fucked. If you didn't do it right the first time, then you're fucked. You're you're fucked. Yeah. So in other words, prisoners who had two rounds of ineffective counsel in state court will be barred from having a federal court consider evidence demonstrating intellectual disability and other serious constitutional errors in their cases. And keep in mind, this decision could impact all cases, not just those dealing with the death penalty. Right. And there's so many instances of, for many reasons, ineffective counsel, wrongful convictions. There has to be some sort of remedy for when the system gets it wrong. Yeah. At the same time, there has to be, you know, victims have to be kept in mind. So where's the balance, right? And this seems like a pendulum swing way too far in one direction. Yeah. Justices Sonia Sotomayor, Elena Kagan, and Stephen G. Breyer formed the dissenting opinion saying, quote, no matter how heinous the crime, any conviction must be secured respecting all constitutional protections, unquote. Could Amen. agree more. Can I be yeah. on the Supreme Court? No, yeah. <laughs> You'd have to work with Clarence motherfucking Thomas. Oh, I'm not scared of him. He reminds me of, <laughs> I got an uncle that reminds me of Clarence Thomas. I can take him. The Innocence Project said, quote, this decision will leave thousands of people in the nightmarish position of having no court to hear their very real claims of innocence. As Justice Sotomayor observed, the decision is perverse. It is illogical. Mm. It is hard to imagine a more extreme malfunction than the prejudicial deprivation of a right that constitutes the foundation for our adversary system. There is no doubt that by stripping back people's constitutional rights to effective counsel, this decision increases the risks of wrongful conviction and sentencing innocent people to death, unquote. Wow, that Kagan, she's a smart cookie, isn't she? She is, yeah. (laughs) She's a gem. But Ramirez is currently being held in the Arizona State Prison Complex in Florence, Arizona. So now let's get into our takes. That's the end of the story. But what do you think about it, Beth? Well, obviously, if everything said about his childhood is true, it, it was a big factor. Absolutely. Factor. Yeah. I don't think he stood a chance at having a normal life. Same. I don't think so. He had an intellectual disability and was never really given any support. Mm-hmm. Everything I read mentioned a gang affiliation, but didn't expand on that. I thought it was starting with an R and ends with the acism that he didn't oh, have yeah. any gang affiliation. He was just a brown person. Brown person. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking if he was in a gang that it would have introduced him to using violence as a means to get what he wanted. But mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know if he was in a gang or not, mm-hmm. but his intellectual disability made him impulsive. Right. And he spent a lot of time in prison, which also didn't help and probably right. also made him more violent. Yeah. And nowhere did I read any sort of explanation of why he lost it that night. He said they got in a fight, but not why. Uh-huh. But he was also drunk and high. So that was probably a factor. And Big one. my suspicion is that she wasn't that into him and she wanted him to leave. And uh-huh. he eventually got angry, uh, felt uh-huh. rejected, got angry and, and lost it uh-huh. and then uh, took what he wanted. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Um, And more about what happened that night. I was just going to say shout out to the neighbors. I mean, Larry and Kathy. 
you know, they didn't get there in time, but I feel like so many times they did something. Bad things happen. Yeah. And people mind their business, which usually is a good thing. But sometimes you just know if something's not right. And and they Larry and Kathy didn't ignore that impulse. Yeah. I think they deserve a shout out. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then my final thought is that the the Supreme Court decision is fucked up and wrong. Basura yeah. to the highest degree. Right. But don't <laughs> worry, everybody. It won't affect rich people. <laughs> oh, that's right. That's yeah. right. Rich people will be fine. They'll it's just jail. poor people uh-huh. who can't afford expensive attorneys who will poor be affected. Poor black and brown so. people. Yes. yes. So don't worry about it. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, my God. I mean, Trump 2024, uh, we're all going to be billionaires, right? Right, right. Oh, oh. my God. It just uh, makes me so mad. Hey, did you know, <laughs> this is a tangent, Elon Musk is paying people's legal fees if they say something fucked up on Twitter and they lose their job? You hear about what? That? Yeah. Yeah, I, I believe it, but um, <laughs> it's dumb. He's so dumb. Twitter is dying. Twitter's dead. I used to think so, but there have been some black people things that have been happening, and I've, you hmm. know... I, I, Beth is one is my white friend that I do trust to let her in and take a peek at what 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 we're doing over there on Black Twitter. Oh, and um, are you fucking up the patriarchy? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one white billionaire at a time, knocking right down on. like dominoes. No, uh, <laughs> but yes, it is mostly dead. But every once in a while, in recent history, with the Alabama ball and everything, it's you know it's still got some life to a it. A little so, liveliness. Yeah. yeah. This case was so compelling because of the Supreme Court issue. Yeah. Because there's a lot of, there's so many, we have over 200 episodes now, right? And there are societal issues that we talk about and we recognize in the context of the case. But after we're done talking about the case, the lasting effects for the victims and the survivors and the family members are infinite. But we don't come across many cases that have court and legal ramifications. So for far reaching ramifications. Yeah. yeah. His childhood sounds horrific. Yeah. And this case made me think of, you know, Oprah Winfrey says, people always say time heals all wounds. And that, that's a lie. Time doesn't heal all wounds. It's what you do with the time that leads to healing. And the only remedy we have in this American society for crime is punishment. And we do a really shitty job. Yeah. And Ramirez's time in prison could have been used to support his healing and his intellectual disability so that he could be a better citizen when he came out in the community and whatever victims, yeah, whatever victims he had harmed before he got in there, you know, considering what those victims, um, not the murder victims, I'm talking about the robberies and, and, and right. um, Right. The other, the other victims. Yeah. yeah. If there had been a focus on what those victims may be needed and what just looks look like for them, we might not have found ourselves covering this case at all. Yeah, yeah. His traumatic childhood did a real number on his nervous system and it fucks up your ability to regulate, impulse control, all those things, all those wires get like mixed up. And then he had those physical accidents. You know, we've talked about the serial killer bingo card, head injuries, bed oh, yeah. Right. And he had those. And it's not a surprise. It's tragic, but it's not a surprise that he ended up in the system. And it is horrifying what he did to Marianne and Candace. And part of me thought, I I mentioned this, what if, what if his mother had had the support that she needed to take care of her family in the first place? None of this would have happened. Right. Right. And we treat intellectual disabilities so much better now than we did then. Now we look back and it's barbaric what we did to 
kids with dyslexia and and any any learning disability or any difference that they may have had. But like I said, it made me sick. It made me angry. For the victims and for the families, the pain is infinite. And I also understand made worse by these court proceedings. Every time an appeal happens, the family is made aware and for some reason has to participate in some of them sometimes. Yeah, and has to deal with it. And they have to go through so much. And I wish there was more done within the system that we have to consider the feelings and the experiences of the victims and the survivors and what justice might look like for them. I believe the Supreme Court may be considered, um, you know, uh, the victims in the rendering of this decision, which I think goes too far. But just like Kagan said, there's, this is going to lead to so many more wrongful convictions Yeah, with, you know, terrible consequences for, for years to come for all of us. Yeah. Now let's get into how not to get murdered. Okay. <clears throat> if you love true crime and you don't want to die, here's a tip for you. <laughs> I never know how it's going to come out. <laughs> Same. Same. <laughs> this segment is not intended to be victim blaming. We thought of this segment because I read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer. This is not meant to blame the victims. It's just learning from other people's experiences. So I, um, this is a tip we've used before, but it made me think of it just because of the situation that we don't know for sure happened to Marianne and Candace, but we suspected from looking at some of the facts that she might've been trying to get rid of this guy and couldn't. So the thing that I wanted to remind people of is that little chant, don't be polite to folks who creep you out. Don't be polite to folks who creep you out. Don't be polite to them. It's not your job to coddle them. Don't be polite to folks who creep you out. Um, and yeah, being polite gets gets women especially into so much trouble. Yeah. Right. When we're out in the world and trying to weigh whether somebody's going to murder us, kill us, or maybe be nice to us and give us a job. You know, like you, we don't, you don't know. And so you're constantly assessing, but also there's this sort of decorum that society says that we have to have. Fuck all that shit. If you get a bad feel, trust your gut and don't, um, just don't be polite just because you have to, because your life depends on your trusting your instincts. So yeah, good one. That's all I got. All right. Is it shout out time? It's shout out time. I, I'm hearing a producer in my ear say that it's time for a shout out. Hang on a second. Okay. It's a shout out portion of our show where we shout out any content by or about people of color or any marginalized or othered folks or any true crime goodies. I just discovered I've been really in my peacock bag. Killing It is a show starring uh-huh. Craig Robinson. Remember him from The Office? Yes. And I thought it was about murder. So far, I haven't seen any murders other than murders yeah. of snakes. But it's a dude from Florida, and he starts killing the invasive species of the Burmese python, because I guess Florida pays people. So that's how he's hustling to get money. But the Uh, cast is beautiful, and it's hilarious. Craig Robinson is black, remember from The Office. His ex-wife is a BIPOC woman who is hearing impaired. So they're signing on the show. Oh, wow. And there's great diversity and complex characters who we, we don't normally see, who are BIPOC folks, people in the disabled community. So it's it's all that and it's hilarious. Nice. I also wanted to shout out Everybody, also on Peacock. It's a documentary. And it follows three intersex people who 
by way of their existence are activists, but they are truly right. activists in the space. But it's, you know, LGBTQIA, right? We all want to be allies and support our LGBTQIA fam. This documentary was eye-opening for me. It's a film about being intersex. That's what the I stands for in LGBTQIA. And it's an umbrella term used to describe people who are born intersex with anatomic or genetic characteristics that don't fit in the male or female binary. Right, right. And it is it was just eye-opening, really well done. What do you got? Cool. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wanted to shout out a podcast that I think you'll like. Tell me more. And tell it's, me so it's more. A, it's a true crime, <laughs> true crime goodie. Okay. <laughs> it's called Tapes from the Dark Side. Oh. And they cover extreme and bizarre true crime cases. Ghosts and shit? Uh, no, uh, oh, but okay. they're, they're just weird. I'll take they it. They say each season we take one case and investigate it in depth using primary audio from 911 calls, police interrogations and interviews, court proceedings, and any other relevant source we can find. Join Mm. us as we break down exactly what occurred, the potential motive behind each crime, and the moral, ethical implications for those involved. Oh, you don't have to say less. Subscribe. I I knew you would like this one. (laughs) (laughs) And then we talked about this on our extra extra episode but just shouting out ahsoka on disney plus mm. it's uh it airs tonight so i haven't watched it yet okay but it's a spin-off from the mandalorian and it stars Ooh. rosario dawson as ahsoka <gasps> i am excited i loved that character in the mandalorian yeah. and yeah. i cannot wait so that is uh killing it on peacock as well as the documentary everybody on peacock as well tapes from the dark side podcast looking at it right now on my phone wherever you get your <laughs> podcasts and ahsoka on disney plus disney and plus. <laughs> that is that is all that's it for today that's it but okay good news you can still find us out there where can the people find us beth our website is fruitloopspod.com and we use fruit loops pod for all of our social media The footnotes for each episode can be found on our website, plus check it out for the different ways that you can support the show and become a Fruit Loops patron. You can also support us by supporting our sponsors or by giving us a five-star review. Five stars only, please! (laughs) Also, don't forget to subscribe, which helps a lot. It does. Yeah. Well, this is a weekly podcast and new episodes drop every Thursday, so until next time, look alive, y'all. It's crazy out there. Sorry. <laughs> I was waiting. <laughs> I'm like, you sure are taking a loud gulp over there. What are you waiting for? Okay. My bad. <laughs> Sorry. I forgot. Oh.
Did you forget we're doing the podcast again? Oh no. (laughs) Where are we? What are we doing? Is this thing on? Oh, it's my turn. (laughs) It's your turn. Well, Mo, I can't speak. Frog, get out of my throat. <laughs> yeah. I rebuke you, frog. Rebuke get out of Beth's throat right now, Lord. Send your healing hand into the throat of Beth, Lord, and get that devil frog out of there. Amen. Hallelujah. Did it work? Let's see. Yeah, I think it did. Cool. As Justice Sotomayor, Sotomayor, Jesus, Sotomayor, Sotomayor observed. Nailed it. The- two officers frog is back ah hang on a second oh yeah thank you for the frog thank you (laughs) for the frog (laughs) oh the frog is in my throat now just kidding (laughs) what Oh, census. What did I say? Anyway, Citizens. according to, <laughs> oh my God, I just saw a funny video. Sorry, where this um, little girl saw on a swing. She said, it said cooperation is fun. And that's not what it said, but that's what this little girl's eyes read. And it uh-huh. actually said cocaine is fun. But, <laughs> cooperation, uh, I like but that. She, she was so confident in her reading skills as uh-huh. I just was. Well. Anyway. She didn't know what cocaine was she didn't anyway. No. This morning my son was getting ready for school and I was like, You're going to school. You're so cool. Do you wanna buy a mule? <laughs> Wait, hang on a second. Um, I forgot to add something to my soundboard. Okay. Here we go. You're gonna love this. <laughs> you got it. I found it. <laughs> Sorry. It's a lot longer than I thought. Okay, friend. Well, I need to All get right. move. I'm spent. Okay. okay. Uh, love you. Night, night. Bye. Bye. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth. Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife, Maggie, and son, Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page.